thank you, Kathy. I'm very happy to be back here. I've spoken at New York Insight a number of times over the years. And um, this is actually the tail end of a book tour. I've been in the United States for about three weeks now, started in Los Angeles and then worked my way eastward. Um, so what I want to do today is uh, have a time where we can quietly reflect, uh, meditate. Um, I'll be giving a couple of talks and I want to leave uh, enough time also for us to be able to develop a conversation, um, questions, comments, reflections. I thought I would um, uh, start this morning by offering a reflection on, on history, the history of uh, the encounter. Um, I'd like to just offer a reflection on the history of the encounter between the Dharma and, um, and the West. In order to enable us to locate what we're doing now, in a space such as this, um, in the context of that bigger picture. Many years ago, this was in the early 1990s, um, I was commissioned to write a book that uh, told this story. The book was called The Awakening of the West. Some of you might have read it. Um, but it was um, an extraordinary learning curve for me. I really had a very patchy knowledge of this story and it required me to do a fair amount of uh, research. I uh, spent a lot of time in the library of the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. And um, I was quite um, uh, amazed, really, at how this narrative unfolded. The first encounters, it's strange, this thing seems to suddenly go quiet. Is that only me hearing it? Okay, good. Um, <coughs> the first encounters between the Dharma and uh, and the West, I suppose, did in fact occur quite shortly after the Buddha's death through the um, philosophers who accompanied Alexander the Great to India. So this is in the, the fourth century BC. And I'm not going to dwell on this particular connection uh, this morning. But there do appear to have been a number of crossovers in terms of common ideas and practices that we find both in the early Buddhist teachings and we find in particularly the philosophy of skepticism that was founded by uh, Piro of Ellis, 
He was one of the two philosophers who came to India with Alexander. He is known from Greek records to have uh, studied with Indian uh, thinkers and sages. And I think a fairly strong case can be made that um, his ideas uh, resonated, whether they were direct borrowings of not or not, we don't know. But they resonate in a very close way with some of the early um, ideas we find in the Buddha's teaching. Particularly ideas around uh, emptiness, ideas around um, achieving a non-reactive, untroubled mind by suspending judgment and opinion. Whether or not that was a direct influence is difficult to be sure about, but in any case, after about, um, within the next seven or eight hundred years, the Greek philosophical schools were closed by the Christian um, emperors, particularly Justinian in Byzantium. And we enter into what are called the Dark Ages, where Europe was uh, effectively uh, dominated by the teachings and the institutions of the Roman Catholic Church. And during that period, we have very little um, in moments of encounter. We have a couple of Franciscan uh, brothers. Means to try to uh, prevent the ex expanding of the Mongol Empire into Europe. Uh, wasn't entirely successful, but we do get a, a glimpse there of uh, a Buddhist world. We get the Jesuits who followed um, the colonial expansion. Uh, again, the key moment here was uh, the beginning of the Age of Discovery, so-called, where Pope Alexander drew a line through the Atlantic Ocean at the level of the Cape Verde Islands and declared as a, a divine right that everything to the west of that line fell under the dominion of the King of Spain, everything to the east of that line to the uh, King of Portugal. So the east, uh, where Buddhism was uh, uh, prevalent, uh, was then uh, effectively invaded by Portuguese uh, um, uh, armies, uh, naval uh, forces, and with them came Jesuit priests, particularly uh, Francis Xavier, who was the founder of the Jesuits, who went to Goa, uh, then he went to Japan, and he died trying to get into China. And from him and other Jesuits, we get the first reliable and somewhat detailed accounts of, um, of Japanese Buddhism, of Tibetan Buddhism, uh, and of Chinese Buddhism. But what, was, um, what is to us a little surprising is that they, these Jesuit uh, scholars, uh, they were very learned men, but they didn't realize that these different forms of what we now call Buddhism actually belonged to the same tradition. They thought they were regional um, variants um, of a kind of folk religion of those countries, 
Some of them even thought that Tibetan Buddhism was a, a, a distorted form of Roman Catholicism. Yeah, but they didn't quite get that these uh, traditions had common origins with the historical figure of Gautama. So it's only when we get to the beginning of the uh, 19th century that uh, the Europeans begin to understand that uh, we are actually speaking about a tradition with a historical uh, founder that expanded over much of Asia and influenced the lives of millions of people, um, arguably as far-reaching in its impact as uh, the teachings of Jesus had been in the West. Now, one of the um, things that struck me when I was doing this research was that from about the year 1800, um, there seemed to be a sort of 40-year cycle, roughly. In other words, key moments in this uh, encounter between Buddhism and the West that somehow marked uh, a shift in gear, we might say, another level of understanding, of insight, of engagement uh, with the Dharma. And what I'd like to do is just sketch um, how this 40-year cycle plays itself out. Around the year 1800, um, again, the result in some ways of the Jesuits' uh, preliminary studies and analysis of Asian languages, we get the first translations into uh, Latin, primarily, of uh, classical Asian texts, not Buddhist texts. The first texts that appeared uh, in uh, Latin were uh, extracts from the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, um, I think some teachings of Confucius, and uh, an Indian uh, theater piece called the Shakuntala, which is not so well known today, a religious play. We also find at this period the founding of the Royal Asiatic Society in Calcutta um, under the direction of Sir William Jones, who was a judge but also a, an Orientalist. And he was the one who realized that Sanskrit and its related languages like Pali and so on were actually of the same language group as uh, the European languages. And this again was a surprise. Uh, this was not at all suspected that actually we didn't have something totally other in the East but rather an extension, a part of our own linguistic group. The Buddha at this period was uh, thought of as just another Indian god. Uh, William Jones actually speculated that he might have come from Ethiopia because of his, the knots on his, of his hairstyle. Uh, but clearly there was very little understanding um, of Buddhism as, a, um, uh, as a, a living tradition with a clear and developed history, a philosophy of its own, uh, and so forth and so on. Um, we also find in this period uh, the coinage of the word we now use unthinkingly, Buddhism. It wasn't used before then. 
and uh, I still think it is a problem. Um, as you may have noticed, I'm trying to use the word the Dharma, which is what Buddhists call Buddhism. Buddhism has all the connotations of other isms. It sounds very much like a kind of dogmatic system. Um, and we're kind of stuck with it. But I'd like to hope that we can think our way out of that language and come to, um, to think either of the Buddha Dharma or simply, at least as Buddhists, uh, simply the Dharma. And we are practitioners of the Dharma. The next cycle of 40 years begins, uh, therefore, in the 1840s. And this period is marked particularly by the first study of Buddhism, or the Dharma, uh, by a man called Eugène Bernouf, who was a professor at the Collège de France in Paris. And he studied in Sanskrit and Pali the early Buddhist uh, writings that had been gathered in the previous 20 or so years and brought to Europe from mainly Nepal, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, parts of India. And he was the first person to actually figure out something that we would now recognize as Buddhist teaching. And he saw how it all kind of hang, hung together as a coherent doctrine. So based on these texts, he wrote a book called um, L'Introduction au Bouddhisme Indien, Introduction to Indian Buddhism. It's actually about 400 pages. And this provided uh, scholars and lay people. It was written in French. It never, was never translated into English. Uh, this provided scholars with a, with a reliable, uh, detailed, and pretty accurate account of what Buddhism uh, was all about. And this very much opened the doors uh, to um, uh, a sudden realization in Europe that there was this tradition in Asia that in many ways uh, was comparable to uh, Christianity. Let me read out a couple of passages uh, of commentators of that period, Christian commentators. Um, this is in 1860, so it's within that same 40-year cycle, uh, written by a certain Abbé, Abbé Deschamps. We don't know anything else about him. One only has to admire, he wrote, with what speed, through its first contact with the spirit of investigation that characterizes our age, Buddhism has emerged from its profound... Another Christian writer, this guy is called Paul de, Bro de Broglie, who says, the appearance of this... as though it's been around for a while, at least all of our lifetimes. But this is not that long ago, 1850, 1860, where all of a sudden it appears as a, as a sort of a massive surprise that this tradition exists. The next 40-year cycle uh, would therefore begin around 1880, and extend through to about the end of the First World War. 
And in this period, uh, again, we shift into another register. We shift into the very first uh, Westerners, or mainly Europeans, also an American, um, who actually uh, are prepared to embrace the Dharma as something they uh, self-identify with. The first uh, Westerners to receive the Buddhist lay precepts were uh, Helena Blavatsky and uh, Colonel Henry Steele Olcott from uh, Boston area. And they, were, of course, were the founders of the Theosophical Society. Theosophy, which nowadays, again, looks a bit outdated and has not really much impact any longer, uh, was at the time, uh, 1880s, uh, a very widespread and influential new religious movement. This was a conscious attempt to effectively invent a new religion, a religion that was founded on the scientific insights of the 19th century and also on the teachings of religions outside those of the Christian West, and particularly uh, Buddhism. There was Hinduism was in there, Sufism, but they tended to identify with Buddhism uh, more than others, and Blavatsky and Olcott went to a gale in Sri Lanka and received the precepts. Um, Olcott stayed in Sri Lanka for some time and began a process of reforming Selenese Buddhism. Um, he wrote a Buddhist catechism and he tried to revive uh, the Buddhist uh, practices which had become somewhat lost in Sri Lanka itself through the impact of Christian uh, missionary work. He also designed the, uh, the, the, the Buddhist flag, which some of you have probably seen. Uh, it's sort of rainbow stripes in one direction and another band at the top of the flag. Um, and he thought of himself as a Buddhist. We also have at this period um, Schopenhauer, the first uh, Western philosopher to um, consider that his philosophy was in accordance with the teachings of Buddhism. Uh, he was not actually much influenced by Buddhist ideas. He had little access to them. But um, he was pleasantly surprised to discover that uh, what he was teaching um, was quite close in many ways to how the Buddhists understood uh, nirvana and the, uh, uh, the achievement of this deep state of peace and uh, serenity. But perhaps more, most importantly, this period sees the first uh, Western Buddhist monks. Uh, recent research has now uh, uncovered the person who is probably the first Western Buddhist monk, a man called Lawrence O'Rourke, <laughs> who was um, born in Dublin uh, in about 1850 probably. And he uh, emigrated here to the United States and became a kind of migrant worker. And this took him from, from New York across the continent to San Francisco. From San Francisco, he took a ship to Japan. From Japan, he traveled into Southeast Asia and ended up in Burma. 
and around the year 1880 became a novice Buddhist monk. Now, O'Rourke, who became known as U Dhammaloka, um, was not a, uh, a European philosopher or intellectual who saw Buddhism as a, as a refined uh, intellectual theory. Um, he was actually a, what we would prob prob probably call a, a vagabond, a beachcomber, a proto-hippie. And uh, I think, and the scholars who are researching this man's life uh, concur, that actually a lot of, of working-class people uh, who kind of drifted around the borders of empire uh, often ended up in Buddhist monasteries. Free food, free shelter, what was there not to like? <laughs> and, um, but the trouble is these people don't leave a written paper trail. They don't leave a record. We're only slowly piecing together the life of Udamaloka uh, because of uh, newspaper reports. Rather than retreat into a hermitage and practice meditation and study Pali, uh, Udamaloka, O'Rourke, became um, a social activist and he sought to uh, help the Burmese rise up against the British. Um, he was radically anti-Christian. He um, was therefore anti-colonial. And also he was an advocate of temperance. He also set up a publishing house and he published not only Buddhist uh, uh, works but also things like Thomas Paine's The Rights of Man. So he was a political activist. Um, the British saw him as a troublemaker. He traveled around Burma uh, speaking to very large crowds, um, basically urging the Burmese to rise up, to, to resist the colonial occupation. As a result, he was arrested by the British and he was charged with sedition, uh, was prosecuted. He got off with a fairly light sentence. It was clearly a kind of warning shot. He subsequently traveled elsewhere in Asia, um, India. He even went apparently as far as Australia uh, teaching uh, the Dharma. And then he just disappears. We don't know where he died. Uh, we don't know anything about his life. We just have this 12-year period in which he appears uh, quite a lot in uh, newspaper reports of that period. We then um, also find around the year 1900 uh, figures such as Jnana Tiloka um, and a man called um, uh, Alan Bennett who became, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Ananda, Ananda Metea, a British guy. And these were kind of European intellectuals who were drawn to Buddhism often through Schopenhauer, through Blavatsky, through Theosophy, but they also um, founded uh, the monastic uh, communities, one of which, the island hermitage in Sri Lanka, uh, became the basis for um, uh, people like Jnana Ponika, who, um, who lived until quite recently, who wrote The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, one of the great introductory books on vipassana and mindfulness. And his main student was Bhikkhu Bodhi, who, of course, lives here in the United States just up the road. So Jnana Tiloka, in a sense, set in motion um, this uh, monastic movement of Westerners 
um, who engaged with the Pali Canon um, as scholars, but also very much as practitioners. So this uh, period, uh, from about 1880 to 1920, marks the first engagement with the Dharma as an existential practice. Very, very few Westerners uh, did in fact take this step, but I think it's uh, highly significant in terms of the willingness to let go of the uh, whole culture of Christian exceptionalism and to embrace uh, a non-European uh, tradition. The next 40-year cycle um, would have started around 1920 through to about 1960, and this uh, period is a rather fallow period in some ways. What is going on of significance is the progressive translation of Buddhist text, in particular the text of the Pali Canon. And these were undertaken by the Rice Davids, Caroline and William Rice Davids, by a fellow in Australia called F.W. Woodward, uh, through uh, I.B. Horner, uh, an English academic, uh, who were part of the Pali Text Society. So again, this was fairly invisible, rather scholarly, but it laid the foundation for the sort of uh, 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 doctrinal uh, teachings that we refer to now, particularly in the Vipassana, Theravada, and mindfulness worlds. This was a period in Europe of great uh, catastrophe, of enormous uh, self-doubt. Uh, this society, which had prided itself on being the apogee of human civilization, descended into uh, barbarity and slaughter in the fields of Flanders in the First World War, millions of people brutally killed, um, and the descent into a sort of hell. Um, we have this famous work by Oswald Spengler called The Decline of the West. Uh, there was a movement here where um, the whole movement of the European Enlightenment, of Christianity, was thrown into doubt. And uh, then we have, of course, the Second World War uh, and all of the disaster and death that that wrought upon Western civilization. Uh, then we come out of that in the 50s. In 1952, um, there was a book published in French again called uh, La Rencontre du Bouddhisme et de l'Occident the encounter of Buddhism and the West. Again, it was never translated into English. It was written by a man called Cardinal Henri de Lubac, um, who at the time uh, was, because of some of his theological views, he was marginalized in the church, and he took to the study of Buddhism. And he wrote some, a number of essays uh, on Buddhism, very you know, insightful in some ways, but this historical survey he did, and the quotes that I gave just now about of these different abbe, uh, I translated from his book. But it, in 1952, when he was writing this book, uh, he had the impression that the encounter of the Dharma, or Buddhism, and the West was more or less only of historical interest. 
that it was more or less um, uh, a, a curious episode in Western history that probably really wasn't going anywhere. And uh, subsequently, he became the advisor um, to John Paul II and uh, uh, Benedict uh, Ratzinger, as I know him, Benedict XVI. Um, and he informed, I think, them both on their views of Buddhism, which were deeply negative. Um, it was Buddhism really got up the noses of both of those popes. And de Lubac was, I think, their main source. Um, but de Lubac basically didn't see what was coming. And this brings us into the next 40-year cycle, which begins in the 1960s. Now, of course, this is the era of which many of us in this room came of age. Um, it was an era which I don't really have to describe. We all know about it. But just to flag the fact that it was a moment of enormous uh, social and political upheaval. Um, it was the era of the Vietnam War. It was the era of uh, the liberation movements, uh, the civil rights movements, um, and it was the era where, after the, um, the disasters of the previous uh, 40 years of war, there was, for the first time, uh, a sense that a new beginning was possible. Um, although this, of course, was somewhat idealistic in many cases. But there was suddenly economic opportunity. There was surplus wealth. And there was a moment of extraordinary... Uh, optimism. The younger generation, uh, including myself and probably many of us in this room, uh, really saw this a period where we could live our lives in a radically different way. And part of that movement resulted in not just a handful of, 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 of beachcombers and Western intellectuals going off to Asia, but a whole generation of young men and women uh, from America, from Europe, from Australia, heading to the East en masse and becoming uh, uh, Buddhists, joining Tibetan communities, joining uh, Zen monasteries in Japan, going to Burma, going to Thailand, to Sri Lanka. Uh, this was a, a, a significant movement, something that had never occurred before. And um, it coincided, of course, with another signal moment, and that was the departure of the Dalai Lama from Tibet in 1959, with 100,000 Tibetans, including uh, many, many, many uh, very learned and accomplished uh, lamas from all the Buddhist traditions of Tibet. And these two movements basically collided. Um, and that's where I got drawn into the Dharma, was in Dharamsala in the early 70s. Um, and this, I think, laid the foundations for a generation who had relinquished a career, uh, either in the workplace or in the academy, um, and devoted themselves to becoming Buddhist teachers, uh, committing themselves to Buddhist practice, and then becoming translators and writers. And when they returned to the West, setting up retreat centers, communities. Um, I've just come down yesterday from Barry uh, in Massachusetts, which is, a, again, a, a very, very fine example um, of this period, and which is now a 
but I drove down from Vermont and arrived in Barry uh, as the sun was setting and drove down Pleasant Street and there on the left was what looked like the small township of IMS and knowing there's the forest refuge behind there then we went I was doing my program in the study center um, it's an extraordinary uh, community and resource that has evolved and this is all and this is in a sense a wonderful example of what emerged out of that 60s uh, generation I could go on and on but um, what it brings us to then is um, the next 40-year cycle which begins according to my hypothesis around the year 2000 now when I was writing this book and concocting this uh, half-baked theory I really wondered um, what the next phase would be and this is like this is in the early 90s um, and I really felt that if this theory had any purchase then it would have to be demonstrated by some new movement um, some new register occurring uh, beginning around the turn of the millennium and I had no idea then what it would be or if it would be more if it would be actually to be honest but now I think I can say with some confidence um, what it is and that would be the penetration of Buddhist meditation into mainstream secular society through the uh, advent of mindfulness uh, this again uh, to me came as a profound shock maybe for many of us here uh, suddenly mindfulness is everywhere on the cover of Time magazine for example um, if someone had told me in the 1970s when I was doing Goenka retreats in India that in 40 years time Buddhist meditation would be available on the British National Health Service I would have written them off as fantasists it would not even have occurred to us that that was even a, a possibility we just wouldn't have we couldn't have conceived of that and yet 40 years later here it is about three weeks ago um, a document was published in London by the all-party parliamentary committee on mindfulness I, 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 kid, I kid you not such a thing exists and it's a body of members of parliament and uh, in in Britain in London um, for the last two or three years eight-week MBSR courses have been offered in the British Houses of Parliament about 160 uh, members of parliament and members of the upper house the so-called Lords have done these courses uh, the committee's been preparing this document for the last couple of years, been consulting. Um, I delivered a presentation to it about a year or so ago. And now it's produced this policy document, um, or a proposal really for policy, that mindfulness be introduced at a national level um, in state education, in uh, healthcare, where it's already happening, in the workplace and in the military and this is now being taken forward by the various government departments uh, for consideration 
Now, we don't know what's going to happen. They might say, no thanks. But the fact that it's happening at all, I think, is remarkable, utterly remarkable. And that, I think, is the phase we're in now. I think we're in a phase now where Buddhism or the Dharma is uh, no longer simply something that is of interest to people who self-identify as Buddhists, who identify as Tibetan Buddhists, Zen Buddhists, Theravada Buddhists, but is becoming uh, present in their lives through their own personal experience that has been in some ways transformative. When I lead retreats uh, nowadays uh, in different parts of Europe and here in the States, there is um, a whole new wave of retreatants coming into these courses, uh, most of whom have uh, been drawn into this practice because of doing mindfulness in a completely non-Buddhist setting and it having had an effect on their lives in a way that is sufficiently significant that they wish to take it further. Um, so people are now coming into retreat situations um, not because they've read some books on Buddhism or because they've heard a talk by the Dalai Lama um, or whoever or have been at a Buddhist monastery. They're coming from a totally new space, a completely secular space. And they're not necessarily interested in adopting Buddhism as a new religion. They're interested in the practice of the Dharma. And many of them, and I get this both from people who teach mindfulness teachers, from mindfulness teachers themselves, and from people who have been practicing mindfulness, that what they're looking for is an ethical and a philosophical framework within which to um, embed their meditation practice so that it becomes three-dimensional rather than maybe just one-dimensional. Um, of course, uh, we can, uh, as many people do, be rather skeptical about this. Uh, people speak of the commodification of the Dharma. Uh, it's being utilized to somehow wheel the oils of the w oil the wheels of capitalism. Uh, Slavoj Zizek, for example, has declared that Buddhism today is becoming the opium of the middle classes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's, um, it's, 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 we do need to be cautious and see that this does perhaps happen. But I think um, it fails to recognize that this movement is actually part of a much longer historical process. And that's why I've chosen to introduce uh, this uh, day of reflection by looking back and seeing that we can trace quite um, clear phases possibly going through a roughly 40-year cycle uh, of which the current uh, manifestation is the uh, engagement with mindfulness in secular settings. I think we also have to be cautious in romanticizing and uh, idealizing antiquity of thinking that the 4th century, 5th century BC is a very, very, very long time ago. Um, 
and that um, things have, uh, you know, we can't really have much understanding today of what moved people in such a world. But again, I think that's also questionable. Um, imagine that uh, the year the Buddha died, which is around 400 BC, um, a child was born. And that child lived the same age as the Buddha, 80, roughly 80. And the year that that child, that old person died, another child was born and lived for 80 years. Um, how many human lifetimes would then be um, involved uh, from then until now? It comes out at the rather small figure of 30. 30 human lives separate the Buddha's time from our own. And again, remembering that each human life is, you've got childhood, old age, third of each day spent fast asleep. In terms of active, conscious, reflective life, that's not very long. Um, so again, it might be that, um, <laughs> what is that racket? Is that a fire engine or something? Um, Equanimity, yeah, that's what we need here. <laughs> yes, I've heard the bells, they're beautiful. Yeah, okay. So, um, if we think of this two and a half thousand years as not actually terribly long, it's certainly just a blink of the eye in terms of human evolution, and not very long in terms of human history either. Um, who's to say that the Dharma um, might still be in its beginning phase? We have no idea how long it's going to go anyway. But I think it's maybe helpful not to give in to this uh, Buddhist uh, pessimism that often comes through the traditions, namely that we're in a degenerate time. We're in the Kali Yuga, that things are just getting worse which is the Indian cosmological understanding of, uh, of our period. Um, I see no reason to buy into that narrative whatsoever. And likewise, as a number of uh, Christian uh, theologians uh, have argued, um, the secular age we live in is not seen as the, uh, as the failing or the end of the impact of uh, Christianity, but possibly its beginning. That secularity um, is actually um, a success story of the teachings of Jesus. Um, Jesus dying on the cross and in a sense giving himself totally to the world. Um, and the Christian church in a sense preparing the way for what um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, have you heard of him? Uh, Bonhoeffer, he's again one of my spiritual heroes. He was a, a theologian and a pastor. Um, came of age when Hitler came to power in Germany. Um, and became part of the resistance against Hitler. He joined the people who plotted to kill Hitler. 
Um, he was arrested by the Nazis, he was imprisoned, and on the personal orders of Hitler, he was executed uh, about three or four days before the end of the war. Uh, but Bonhoeffer coined this expression, religionless Christianity. Um, he saw the churches as having failed in coming to uh, terms with Hitler in resisting him. And he saw the way Christianity was going was one in which one would let go of religion, Christianity as a religion, and it would give itself totally to the secular condition. And in his last letters from prison, this is the kind of the ideas that he was working on before he was tragically murdered by the Nazis. We have more recently an example of this from a Buddhist perspective, and that is a book written by His Holiness the Dalai Lama called Beyond Religion, in which he also um, refers as a central idea of his uh, understanding uh, the idea of secularity. Um, and he talks nowadays of a secular ethic. Now, he gets his um, inspiration from his understanding of the Indian Constitution, which was established in 1948, uh, or in the years shortly after, and envisioned a thoroughly secular society that um, was characterized by tolerance. So the Dalai Lama, in this recent book of his, sees the secular situation as one that is able to uh, respect and um, affirm religious diversity, uh, political diversity, because a secular space is basically a tolerant space. Now, this is an understanding of secularity that's maybe not the one that's foremost in our minds when we hear uh, such a term. For many of us, the secular stands in contrast to the religious. Secular is often used uh, particularly amongst uh, Christians, Jews, Buddhists perhaps, uh, as a as a sort of shallow, um, not terribly um, uh, rich or deep way of living on this earth. But um, I think we have to question that. I take the word secular to, um, in its more literal sense, from the Latin word seculum, uh, which means this age, this time, uh, in Italian you say questo secolo, secolo means century, uh, siècle in French, seculum. So a secular dharma, um, again a term that's being used more and more now, sometimes secular Buddhism, but I prefer a secular dharma, is a, a dharma that is founded upon what we can uh, uh, reliably consider to be what was original and distinctive in the Buddha's own teaching, and that's the historical Buddha teaching in his seculum in the 5th century BC, and asking how this 
practice, this philosophy, this ethic can address the concerns of our time. That would be a secular dharma. And I think what's happening in many ways is the emergence amongst a number of people who feel either disillusioned or disinterested in the more traditional forms of Buddhism to ask how we might articulate this tradition anew, not reducing it just to meditation or to philosophy, but as a comprehensive way of life that is rooted in the primary Buddhist values, uh, teachings, and uh, ethics, but that concerns itself with uh, the condition we find ourselves in today on this little planet revolving around this sun and having spawned, um, and as far as we know, for the only time ever in this universe, although statistically there are almost certainly other forms of life elsewhere in the cosmos, but as far as we actually know, uh, human life as we know it came about in many ways haphazardly, um, contingently, uh, through the processes of uh, evolution by natural selection, and we find ourselves here now. And this is our world, and a secular approach does not mean just considering our own personal welfare in the brief span of our life, but seeing the Dharma as a response to how humans and all other forms of sentient existence can uh, be uh, able to survive and flourish on the surface of this earth after our death. And I think we are, as it were, inhabiting thereby a cosmos, and by cosmos I mean that again rather literally, uh, an order, a sense of the universe as somehow ordered and meaningful and structured that extends beyond our brief span of life with a sense of history in the human sphere, in the sense of evolution, in that we're all springing every, from the tiniest blade of grass to the most complex uh, you know, living organism with a human brain, we all spring from the same stuff, the same DNA. And we can foresee um, a world after our deaths, um, and particularly today, we see how our behaviors, uh, driven by what the Buddha called greed, hatred, and delusion, is now threatening the survival of life on earth. That's our cosmos, that's the secular setting for um, uh, the Dharma for many of us today. So what I'd like to um, uh, do this afternoon is to um, sketch what might be the outlines of a, uh, a rethought uh, dharma, specifically considered in terms of this seculum, but rooted quite rigorously and critically in the 
uh, early Buddhist uh, teachings. So I'll stop here. Um, we could actually maybe just open up now for uh, a discussion. Um, and then we'd, I'd like to conclude with a, um, a, another period of meditation. There is a roving mic over here. Um, again, if you need to use the restrooms, please do so. Um, who would like to um, start this uh, discussion? Um, if there's nobody, then we'll just meditate. It's fine by me. Uh, here, um, could you wait for the mic? Yeah. Hello. Hi. Um, I celebrate your wonderful ability. Is this is this amplifying? I celebrate okay. <laughs> your wonderful ability with language, and it informs the work what you share with us, and it's delightful, and I appreciate it. Um, I am someone who's been studying, reading Dharma um, for several years, and I am I live in Lower Westchester, and I've been saying things to people to try to find other people to study with, be with, sort of possibly sangha. Mm -hmm. And I've been studying Tarawad and mm -hmm. stuff, insight. But um, so anyway, what would someone like me do? I'm, I'm in. In. For this. <laughs> I'm, I'm, in, I'm from, I, this, this, after a long, a long life of help, I found what I need and I'm in for living this and I wanted to include other people mm -hmm. and I I've been, I there's a ter there's a okay over there yes there's a Thai Buddhist m monks residence in my neighborhood I've gotten to know mm -hmm. the monks a little bit um, but there's no place for me to study or meditate with them um, and so I wondered, what does someone like me do to invigorate mm. my involvement? And I, it's hard for me to get to Manhattan. You mentioned Barry, and I may have to move there for the rest of my life. And <laughs> I don't know if I can afford that. So anyway, what, how do we get together? Well, I think there's a, I mean, this is a question that comes up a lot. Um, and I don't have a kind of a pat answer with a list of suggestions, one to ten, and a kind of a you know, something you could, you know, I would tell you what to do. Um, I think in, if we take the Dharma with a degree of uh, seriousness, and again, what that really means, if, you know, if we take our, our lives with a degree of, of seriousness, uh, if, if, if we really are committed to what we think of as our ultimate concerns, um, I think it's helpful to really um, allow ourselves to reflect and, uh, and affirm uh, the quality of that concern. Um, there are different ways you can do this. One is to sometimes reflect on your own death, to recognize that our remaining years could be very few that um, we don't uh, have no guarantee of living to any given age. Uh, 
when you get to be, and I'm only 62, which is not that old, but I notice now when I read the obituaries in the papers that people my age and younger drop dead. So without making that into a kind of morbid, gloomy reflection, meditating on our mortality, our impermanence, and then, as it were, asking ourselves uh, deeply, you know, what should I do? Try to invigorate your motivation with a level of urgency. And that will give you the strength, perhaps, to make changes in your life. Like moving to Barry, for example, if that would be the thing. But I do feel that each of us really has to uh, address this question in terms of the specifics of our own personal life, in terms of the responsibilities we may have to family, uh, to community. Um, and each person's configuration of these things will be be distinct. Um, I do think there's a great deal to be learned from uh, spending time uh, with uh, traditional Buddhist uh, forms. Um, I think we shouldn't be too precious in saying, well, I can't accept this because I don't like this ritual or I can't believe in this doctrine, therefore that's not for me. Um, that's not a terribly helpful way to go about it. I think all of the Buddhist traditions uh, uh, have teachers and practices and uh, community meetings and, and so on um, that are very supportive in our engagement with the Dharma. Uh, go in there with a critical mind, but don't let the critical mind foreclose what you could actually benefit from and learn. I think a lot is to be said for spending time with other people who have committed their lives to these kinds of practices, whether they're monastics or not. I don't think it matters too much. But at the same time, to seek out, wherever one can, uh, a form of, uh, of thinking about the Dharma, a form of practicing the Dharma that uh, is in the, the, that resonates and that has an affinity with what one intuitively feels uh, to be uh, what matters most to you in your life. Uh, it may, may involve making difficult decisions, um, but that I think is part and parcel of what a committed life entails. Uh, we have a wonderful resource now uh, called the Internet, and there are a number of virtual communities. Um, for example, there's a fellow here who just introduced himself, Doug. Where are you, Doug? Uh, he's part of the Secular Buddhist Association, which is a virtual community online with podcasts and other resources available, uh, forums where you can discuss. And there's many similar such things. Um, we have the audio resource of Dharma Seed, which you probably know about. And I think we therefore have access today to an extraordinarily wide range of uh, materials that can support our practice. Yeah? And the, uh, sorry, can we speak into the mic? Oh, still here. What arose in my mind uh, a few minutes ago was... there. There is a zendo right down the road. Um, go to the zendo. 
but it's like it's rituals and yeah, it's well, religion don't, don't, and yeah. don't worry about that. Um, okay. The, 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 I mean, if it if it really turns you off, then okay, they have some suggestions here. Um, the point is, is okay, it's got rituals and robes and smells and bells and those things which you may not like, but basically, it's a space to sit with yourself, with others who support that. Uh, to uh, come to terms with the great question of birth and death. That's, what the, that's the essence of that practice. Okay, this gentleman here. Uh, yes, a uh, question that I often try to ask myself and cannot answer, and that is, uh, I understand from the ideas of secular Buddhism that y your attempt is to uh, identify uh, those parts of the Buddha's uh, teaching present today that are genuinely the Buddha's teaching and not other things written that are um, beliefs in the context of the time, such mm -hmm. as karma and rebirth, etc. The thing I always struggle with, though, is when I read anything in the Pali Canon or elsewhere, there is so much reference to devas and rebirth and karma and all of that. One cannot help but think that the Buddha believed these things. Mm -hmm. And if the Buddha did believe these things, does that not in some way invalidate everything else that he believes if one rejects those things? Uh, well, I, 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 I don't think so at all. But that is, I think, um, uh, a question that is, uh, uh, really does need to be addressed. And you're absolutely right. I mean, when you read the Pali Suttas, it's framed um, you know, completely in terms of uh, future and past lifetimes, it's framed in terms of a, a law of karma that seems somehow almost mystically to govern the fate, the destiny of living beings. Um, but you have to remember that that is exact, those views are found um, in exactly the same form in Hinduism and in Jainism and in other earlier forms of Indian thought, such as the Ajivakas and so on. In other words, this um, was simply the world view that was uh, taken for granted um, at the Buddha's time. Um, and in that sense, it's very much like the kind of world view or cosmos that we take for granted today. I mean, I'm not a scientist. Um, I, if I were confronted by a person who, who had no, uh, who didn't believe in the Big Bang, who didn't believe in expanding universe, who didn't believe in natural evolution, who didn't believe in the complexity of the brain and so on, I could, there's no way that I could persuade that person of the truth of these doctrines, if they are true. Uh, we take that on board as the, um, as the uh, simply the the framework within which we lead our lives. Now, we have a, a statement uh, here from the Buddha, uh, which he addresses this point, and he says, "Bhikkhus, 
I do not dispute with the world. Rather, it is the world that disputes with me. Of that which the wise in the world agree upon as not existing, I too say that it does not exist. And of that which the wise in the world agree upon as existing, I too say that it exists. So the wise of the world, which is basically those people, the society of that time, consider to be experts, the Buddha just goes along with that. Um, I find it quite uh, inconceivable that if the Buddha were to suddenly reappear in 21st century Manhattan, that he would then embark on trying to persuade everybody that uh, the doctrines of reincarnation. I, I really, that to me doesn't make much sense. Um, we have a number of passages in the suttas which actually do question uh, those uh, beliefs. Uh, there are not many, I agree. Um, we also find that in the suttas, the Buddha never actually has to uh, stand back and explain reincarnation. He doesn't, there's not the, the sutta on reincarnation, where he says, because there is, da, da, da. doesn't occur. It's just not there. And in other words, it's taken for granted. We also find in the suttas uh, that nowhere does the Buddha offer a mechanism whereby reincarnation could be understood as working. In fact, uh, there's one sutta in the Sangyutta where he says that the idea that consciousness could exist independently of the body and the world, uh, the physical world, and be uh, reborn, he said that is impossible. So there are these little passages that suggest that uh, um, he didn't necessarily buy into that worldview, but I think for the most part, he went along with it, much in the same way as we would go along with the worldview of modernity. And I th I'm going to come back to that this come back to that this afternoon. But I think the more important point is, is the Dharma um, about presenting us with an uh, accurate description of reality by gaining insight into which we become enlightened? Or is the Dharma a pragmatic ethics with, by putting into practice which we transform the quality of our experience and bring about uh, well-being for ourselves and others. In other words, is it an ethics or is it a metaphysics? And I think there's a very strong case to be made that the Buddha rejects metaphysics. In other words, generalized truth claims about the nature of reality and uh, and, and, and uh, privileges, uh, practices, uh, ethical practices, contemplative practices, philosophical practices that make a, uh, uh, a difference in the quality of our lives. Uh, that actually, I mean, he compares himself to a physician, a doctor. He's interested in uh, a teaching that, uh, and a practice that can lead to healing, uh, not that leads to uh, understanding the truth. And if we frame the Dharma in that way, uh, we kind of, these questions actually no longer become particularly pertinent. Whether or not there is reincarnation, whether or not there is 
you know, natural selection, if you like, is actually a second order uh, uh, issue. What really matters is how we engage with the suffering of life, how we can live with ourselves and with others in a way that uh, brings into being um, a culture, uh, a practice, um, an inner state of freedom and insight that is about how we live totally as human beings. Uh, common to that of uh, the ancient Greeks, um, I feel that the Buddha's uh, teaching was essentially about uh, human flourishing, how we can flourish as human beings uh, fully, not just personally, but socially, communally, environmentally, uh, in the conditions we find ourselves today. Uh, okay, well, we've got the microphones are here and then at the back. Well, this is uh, related to this gentleman's um, mm. question, but, but looking at a, a practical level now in terms of finding a place to practice. Um, my experience, and, and I'm, I agree with what, what you said, I mean, I, 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 that's the way I see things, and I consider myself to be secular and a Buddhist, and so I, I've dealt with this long before I wrote your books, frankly, <laughs> but they resonate for me. Um, the, the difficulty I, I have is, on the one side, mindfulness as it exists in, in the vernacular now and on cover of Time magazine, a lot of it is, is just meditation. Yeah. In my view, mm -hmm. it's, it's not an ethical practice. Um, but then, when I get to places that do the ethical practice, the first hump I have to get over is the reincarnation thing and the mm -hmm. karma. I mean, uh, you know, personally, I'm not dogmatic about it, certainly, but personally, it doesn't do anything for me. I, I just don't mm -hmm. believe in it. You know, like I don't believe in heaven and hell. You know, mm -hmm. that's that's just doesn't make sense to me. So, when I take classes with traditional, more traditional Buddhist centers, often the first reading they give, so this is Bhikkhu Bodhi's thing of the Eight Noble Paths, which I think is tremendously important Eight mm -hmm. Noble Paths, he, he introduces it by saying the first step on the Noble Path, or if you don't think of them as sequential steps, at least the first numeral in the path, is right view. And he goes on to say the right view is to believe in karma and reincarnation. Right? I mean, in essence, that's, that's you know. Uh, and so I, I just right away, I'm like, oh, man, you know, i got to get over this. Okay, I'll just stop, pay attention for a while, and we'll get on to the other stuff. And this is sort of painful, and maybe I should go back to just only meditating, and I won't have to, like, deal with this cognitive dissonance, you know. <laughs> so uh, is there going to be? Uh, I, 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 that's a bad way of putting it, but, but what is the hope for forming some sort of middle ground between those things, the religiosity and the, and the purely, this is only meditation, non-ethical? Yeah, um, well, first of all, um, I don't think you will find a single passage in the Pali Suttas where samaditi, right view, is expressed in terms of believing in karma and reincarnation. Mm. Uh, the, what this requires us to do is to go back to the sources and uh, possibly base our understanding of the Dharma on, um, 
on texts that uh, are found in the suttas but do not um, privilege, uh, let's say, the view of reincarnation. Um, and for example, the, uh, for me, the right view thing is best articulated in, um, what the hell is it? Ah, um, in the Kachana Gota Sutta, where right view is presented as um, living, um, well, this is what the Buddha says. He says, this is uh, Samaditi, right view. He says, by and large, Kachana, who's asked him, what is Samaditi? This world relies on the duality of it is and it is not. But one who sees the arising of the world as it happens with complete understanding has no sense of it is not about the world. And one who sees the ceasing of the world as it happens with complete understanding has no sense of it is about the world. In these respects, his vision is complete. I don't even like the word right view, frankly. It sounds dogmatic and slightly moralistic. Sama means something like complete. Diti means vision, view. To me, it's a complete vision which is founded on um, a way of experiencing the world that is not locked into the primary categories of language of being and non-being. In that sense, it's very close to um, a Pyrrhonian skepticism. In other words, it's keeping one's life um, founded on a deep questioning and curiosity about what is going on and is noting, seeing also how the conceptions of this is, this is not, this dualism is what actually underpins uh, a lot of our self-referencing, a lot of our reactive uh, patterns of greed and hatred. So here, in this vision, um, we have a very different starting point. In other texts, uh, the Buddha describes uh, right view, complete vision, as understanding the Four Noble Truths. Not, you won't find anywhere where it says karma and rebirth. I can assure you. I might be wrong. Likewise, when we come to the idea of karma, the Buddha is often asked about this. And when he's asked what is karma, he replies consistently, karma is chetana. Karma is intention. In other words, it's about um, noticing how your intentions lead you to s speak, to act, to work, to, to involve yourself in the world, and to begin to take as part of your practice um, an understanding of the consequences of what starts in your thoughts, translates into acts, and then has repercussions on yourself and others. That's a, you know, it's an ethical practice. And um, he says this is something that you can understand for yourself, and if you don't get it, there are other people in the world who can, who, who, who can help you understand this. He doesn't present it as a kind of vast metaphysical theory that operates over many lifetimes. So in many instances, the Buddha's teaching uh, comes down to earth. And likewise with ethics. Um, it's true, in the suttas, the Buddha sometimes will say uh, when somebody dies that this person will get reborn in this realm or whatever it might be. But what this, I think, challenges us to do is to find within the earliest sources um, the foundations of the ethic of non-harming or non-violence. 
And I don't think that ethic is founded in the law of karma, in that kind of metaphysical sense at all. But it's founded, for me, um, in a passage uh, that most succinctly states it in the Sutta Nipata, where the Buddha says, just as I am, so are they, just as they are, so am I. Comparing oneself to others, one does not kill or cause to kill. Now that, to me, is a much more um, uh, workable and, frankly, appealing um, conception of, uh, e of, of ethics than this, this cause-effect, basically, system of punishments and rewards, which is not much different from what we find in other religions. If you do good, you get born somewhere nice. If you do bad, you get tortured in some kind of hell. Um, but rather to think of ethics as being more profoundly rooted on our capacity for empathy, identifying with the other. And this comes about through, again, training, realizing that we are not a separate, isolate ego or self. Uh, to erode those perceptions through awareness and attention, which has the affective consequence of, of uh, empathizing more intimately and truly with the suffering of the world. So I think we can rethink the Dharma from the ground up. And uh, this, I think, is the challenge of a secular Dharma, is to um, go back to the sources and, in a sense, find the kind of foundational teachings on the basis of which we can then evolve um, uh, a philosophy, an ethical understanding, uh, a contemplative practice that is thoroughly grounded in these early sources, uh, but that is much more uh, uh, accessible and uh, uh, pertinent to our kind of worldview today. You know, quick comment is that I, I read your book and I, 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 I resonate with what you're saying. Um, it's a little bit of frustration on my part because I can't move to France, you know, and join your group, and it doesn't exactly exist here in New York, to my knowledge. And the internet is sort of a poor, you know, not a personal thing. And today is sort of like the only mm -hmm. chance I have to talk mm -hmm. about these things in a group, really, um, without people saying, "Oh, that's very controversial. Let's not go there," you know. And um, it's just a matter of frustration, you know. Okay. That, that, that that's but but I mean, it's making perfect sense to me. Okay, well, there's a simple answer to that question. Okay. Um, my friend Wes Nisker, uh -huh. uh, who is a, actually better known in Berkeley as a radio disc jockey, um, uh, he had a bumper sticker made saying, if you don't like the news, make some of your own. Okay, uh, all, and, right. Um, all right, I got you. <laughs> you get the idea. If yeah, you can't find what you yeah. need, then instead of feeling frustrated, okay. do something about it. Okay, that's, that's the right answer. Create no. some, you know, get yeah. together with a few friends who think the same way and get something happening. Yeah, don't, be, it, don't be lazy. Don't yeah. be lazy. Right. Don't expect everything to be served to you on a plate. Right. Uh, get on with it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think this gentleman's standing at the back and then we'll go here. This question sort of goes back to the conversation about 
um, the Buddha as a physician or the Buddha offering and the Buddha's teachings offering a certain healing. Um, the short question is how do you reconcile or understand the Buddha teaching the truth of dukkha as um, one of the three sort of characteristics mm -hmm. and the Buddha offering a path that is often translated as um, leading to the surmounting or the overcoming of dukkha. Well, I'm going to address this this afternoon. So, Fair enough. So um, uh, I don't want to preempt what I'm going to say there. It's a very good question, but it again uh, shows a kind of uh, the very language that you use, which is the language you'll find in the suttas, um, again is founded on a kind of metaphysical realism, that the nature of reality is dukkha, and uh, we have to get to the ending of dukkha. But if the nature of reality is dukkha, how can we get to the ending of dukkha without getting rid of reality? And that is actually kind of what traditional Buddhism suggests. You basically stop, you know, you have to stop getting reborn. That's the problem. And as one of my Tibetan teachers said once, uh, no head, no headache. <laughs> but I'll, get, I'll come back to that. This gentleman here and then over there. Uh, yeah, uh, I was at the Unitarian Universalist. Yeah, uh, I remember you from there. I was also at Upaya uh, last year, mm -hmm. and you said something there that I think really uh, laid open a pathway into the secular experience. You said that uh, you saw one translation where the Buddha said that uh, he was of the lineage of the sun, yeah. And I, I was wondering, I mean, because I've been sort of experimenting with what that naturalism mm -hmm. is. In fact, there was an article in the New York Times recently that we need to identify more as mammals with our other mm -hmm. fellow mm -hmm. mammals. And maybe uh, this nirvana is actually animal consciousness. But uh, if you could reflect on any f more thoughts you had about the natural, identifying with the natural world mm -hmm. in a very deep way. Uh, that, that, that comment you made at Upaya went like electricity through the group, and everybody sort of, oh, well, that's a different, different uh, okay. uh, view of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, any comments you have further that you've seen natural sort of roots to this secularism? Well, I, I, uh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I'll maybe need to say a few things about this lineage of the sun business, but. Um, we can learn a great deal from uh, biblical scholarship. Uh, Christian theologians and linguists uh, have been picking apart the New Testament for nearly 200 years now and trying to somehow ascertain criteria that would demonstrate a, a, gos a gospel passage as being more likely to, have, to go back to Jesus than less likely more likely to be original to him and not just borrowed from the, the world view of his time. And one of the uh, criteria um, is um, the use of metaphor and parable. What happens in religious traditions that often start out with very, with, with very naturalistic imagery uh, then evolve into um, highly abstract uh, religious uh, theories and doctrines. And you see that in Buddhism. And one of the 
to me, one of the great characteristics of the early suttas, um, and one of the you know, bases upon which we might regard a particular sutta passage as being earlier rather than later, because the Pali Canon is not of equivalent antiquity. No one will argue that. It's, a, it's, it's layers and layers and layers of historical text. But when the Buddha uses uh, metaphors drawn from the ordinary experience of the natural world, that, I think, for me, uh, uh, argues for something possibly earlier than later. He uses, for example, a lot of water imagery. He refer like entering the stream, for example. Um, now, this is a, a, a metaphor, but it's drawn from the experience that all people in all walks of life, they know what it's like to go into a stream. They know what streams are. And um, that, to me, is far more, uh, in a sense, engaging because it engages our imagination. We can, each of us, associate with that metaphor what it's like to be in a stream. And it relates to concrete experiences we have in our bodies. Later, you know, elsewhere, or probably later, this experience is defined as the loss of three fetters. And this becomes quite abstract. Um, and rather than uh, a concrete image, it becomes a sort of psychological doctrine, which is helpful, uh, but it's one step removed from the immediacy of uh, that experience. The business of the sun, uh, the Buddha uses the metaphor of the sun quite a lot. Um, he describes himself, as you uh, reminded uh, us, uh, when as a young man he first meets the king of Magadha, Bimbisara, and Bimbisara asks, well, who are you? This is actually before the awakening. He describes himself as belonging to the Adicha Gota, the lineage of the sun, which suggests a lot of things. It suggests very strongly that he did not grow up in a Brahmanical society. Um, again, scholars have shown this, I think, quite persuasively now, that the Buddha's teaching was not a reaction against Brahminical Hinduism. He didn't reject the caste society, reject belief in a creator God, reject belief in a permanent soul. Because those ideas and those social practices had not yet taken root in the far northeast of the Gangetic Basin where he lived and taught. They came along at a later date. And this allows us to ask, uh, uh, or it allows us to have a, a different understanding of where the Buddha's, in a sense, coming from in terms of his society, in terms of uh, the kind of religious practices that would have been prevalent at his time. He comes from a society that is republican. It's not a monarchy. Um, it's not a society that's governed by the norms of Brahminical caste system. Uh, there are just two basic classes in Sakya, the region where he was born, uh, the, the rulers and the householders. Not four castes, but just these two classes. He belonged to the class of the rulers. In terms of the religious practices, it would appear that the Sakyans were animists, probably, and uh, certainly uh, worshipped the sun. And 
if you look at the descriptions of the Buddha going into uh, preparing to give a talk, particularly in Sakya and these areas, you have him sitting, and they describe this in, in weird detail. They say he, he sits with his back against the pillar of the assembly hall facing the east. He's always facing the east, facing the direction where the sun arises. He also is described in the suttas as the Adichamita, the friend of the sun, and the Adichabandhu, the, the kinsman or the relative of the sun. Now what's striking about this is that he doesn't reject sun worship. He doesn't reject those metaphors. He takes the metaphor of um, a solar cult, as it were, and he universalizes it. In one or two passages, uh, it's suggested that nirvana is understood uh, symbolically as the sun. When he speaks of the teacher, the Kalyana Mita, the good friend, he describes the good friend as like the, uh, like the rising of the sun at dawn that sheds light on the landscape. And in the same way, he says, the good friend is one who sheds light on the Noble Eightfold Path. Now all of these are concrete naturalistic metaphors. And I believe that he um, took this naturalistic, animistic uh, practice and turned it into a universal symbol system um, that didn't reject those images but in a sense transformed them. And we also find that when the first Greeks become converts to Buddhism about uh, 300 years after the Buddha's death, uh, they seek to represent the Buddha through uh, a figure that they can identify with in their own culture. They select the god Apollo. Apollo is the prototype for the Buddha image. That started out as Apollo. And Apollo is the god of the sun, and Apollo is the god of healing. So both of those elements um, are, you know, in a sense, uh, affirmed uh, in that early Buddhist community. It's, uh, in, in the language of the, th of the Anglican theologian Don Cupid, uh, this is what he calls a solar living. That the sun is, um, uh, it w that the sun is a, becomes a metaphor for a life of of light and heat. The sun uh, gives us light, the sun gives us heat, which metaphorically we can understand as wisdom and compassion. So to live like the sun means in a way to, to burn yourself up and generously and selflessly radiate wisdom and compassion into the world. Now that's my interpretation. You don't find that in the suttas. But this is the power of, of concrete naturalistic metaphor. Whether it's water, whether it's the sun, he also uses the image of fire. Uh, these kinds of motifs are to me uh, very viscerally engaging. Um, even the idea of the path. Again, it's a metaphor. What does it mean? Uh, it's a profoundly human metaphor. When he talks of uh, emptiness, for example, uh, 
He doesn't speak of understanding emptiness in meditation through some direct non-conceptual uh, insight, some cognitive process. He talks of emptiness as a vihara, as a dwelling. He talks of dwelling in emptiness, which is again a very fundamental modality of human existence, dwelling on earth, dwelling in emptiness, dwelling in metta, in karuna. The Brahma Viharas, again, are dwellings. So when you, uh, you know, go back, if you follow this lead of the primacy of metaphor and parable, you're taken back to, I think, a very, um, a, a very naturalistic, a very physically based engagement with the world that becomes the foundation for imagining how to teach and to practice uh, the Dharma. The Buddha also uses a great deal of um, imagery from the work of artisans. He's very impressed by carpenters, arrowsmiths, um, wood turners, goldsmiths. There's numerous images, uh, uh, images taken from his uh, uh, obviously quite close observation of how artisans work. Artisans um, are people who have accomplished not so much intellectual knowledge, but they've cultivated know-how rather than know-that, as I think John Dewey phrased it. The Buddha's interested in know-how. Um, and this, too, is drawn from uh, the world of craft, the world of everyday work. Um, I could go on and on. I'll stop there. Uh, over here. Um, this will be the last question. Then we'll have a short uh, pause of uh, reflection. You've got the mic? It's on its way. Okay. <coughs> so I've been reading the Pali Canon for a long time, and I started reading it on my own and found a lot of teachings that talk what it's hard to deny about reincarnation. Uh -huh. Talk about he recollects his manifold past lives with their aspects and particulars. That is where he lived and ate. And the Buddha talks, there's a number of suttas where he's like walking with a disciple, and the Buddha will start telling a story and a disciple will say, well, how do you know this? And I'm not great at quoting these mm. things, but how do you know this? And the Buddha said, well, in my previous Absolutely. lifetime, I was this person. Mm. Um, so as I, I didn't believe in reincarnation or, or any of these mm. things when I started my Buddhist practice, but then as I read it and read it, I said, well, how am I going to deny this? And then, so then, then I started attending sanghas, listening to teachers and, and getting more involved. And I find like, it's, it's a stretch to me to say, well, the Buddha did say, I will adhere to the world view, and he agrees with what people say. But to tie that to reincarnation, he never makes that direct tie. It, to me, it seems kind of a stretch. And it's mm -hmm. like, now what I see, and you're talking about the evolution of Buddhism, people don't believe in this. So instead mm -hmm. of saying, well, too bad, this is what the Buddha taught, mm -hmm. we're going to say, well, no, we're going to twist the Buddha's teachings to fit what people today want to believe. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like you want to be a baseball player and say, well, I'll hit the ball, I'll catch the ball, but I don't believe in throwing the ball. 
you're not going to be a very good baseball player. Because I hear a lot of teachings also say, well, the Buddha really didn't teach the end of suffering. He said you might, you know, feel a little bit better, et cetera, et cetera. But I hear a lot of the teachings getting changed to fit what we are today. The Buddhism's been around for 2,600 years. There was a lot of other spiritual teachers at the time that came up and had teachings that are long gone that you don't hear much of. And you would know this. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it didn't work. So nowadays... People are saying, well, there's this mindfulness thing, and there's no such thing as the complete end of suffering, even though the Buddha did say the end of suffering. Um, It's like it's getting watered down. It's changing Mm. to fit us. Instead of us saying, well, sorry, if you don't believe in it, then you should just do something else. Thank you. No, that's that's an entirely valid uh, point. I don't, uh, I I respect that. Um, The, uh, first of all, I don't think it's a question of, uh, to me, to deny reincarnation is just as dogmatic as to affirm it. My position would be, I just don't think it's terribly relevant. Uh, whether you affirm it or negate it, the basic question still remains, how do you come to terms with suffering? Uh, how do you live uh, a life according to the Eightfold Path? Uh, how do you uh, uh, transform and improve the quality of your life and that of others. Um, again, I mean, I could, we could get into arguments about, for example, the co- he does use this expression, uh, the complete end of suffering, I agree. But when you look, for example, in the first discourse, when he defines dukkha niroda, the end of suffering, what does he say? I don't know. You don't know, okay. He, he says it's the ending of, of tangha, it's the ending of craving the ending of reactivity. He doesn't describe it as the ending of birth, sickness, aging, and death. Now, to me, that's, uh, that's again, a, a problem. Because um, the ending of suffering is effectively the goal of all Indian religious traditions. Whether you're a Hindu or a Jain or a Buddhist, it's the ending of suffering. And what it means, traditionally, as you seem to uh, suggest, it's the ending of getting born. It's the ending of birth and death. Uh, in other words, that is the soteriological framework of Indian religion. I don't think one can dispute that. Um, the tra- the, there are you know, traditions that didn't survive. Some of them were actually rejecting those, uh, that soteriological frame. But uh, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, Jainism, all agree on this point. Now, to me, that um, suggests very strongly that this is a feature of the Indian cosmological worldview. The very fact that it's shared. The very fact that each te- teacher, prominent teacher within all those traditions will make exactly the same claim. The ending of rebirth. The ending of uh, you know, birth and death. In, uh, in, in analyzing the Pali suttas, uh, I agree with you that it's not particularly um, uh, rigorous to just select the bits that you like and ignore the bits that you don't or say, well, because I don't believe in this, therefore he can't have said it. That is not rigorous scholarship. We therefore need to establish uh, a set of what are called hermeneutic criteria. How do we, uh, we... We need a set of rules somehow to help us clarify what it is that is more likely to have been original to the Buddha as opposed to simply borrowed from the worldview of his time. That to me is a, 
is a very important starting point. And I try, in my reading of these texts, to be very uh, uh, consistent in the application of that principle. So if we find the Buddha saying something that you could just as well have heard from a Brahmin priest or a Jain monk, we can respectfully and politely put that to one side. What we're not saying is therefore it is wrong. That's another decision altogether. That's another story. But we can, I think, pr pursue this reading of the Pali Canon by utilizing and adhering to this kind of criteria. If we pursue that by trying to tease apart what is unique and distinctive and original to the Buddha that we can't derive from Brahmanism, Jainism and, and those traditions, then I think we have a starting point to be able to identify what lies at the core of his teaching. And um, I would argue there are four things that, that you cannot derive from the culture of the time but are exclusive to what the Buddha taught. The principle of conditionality, the, um, the practice of uh, the Four Noble Truths, the uh, perspective of mindful awareness of the phenomenal world, and the, uh, prince and the, and, and the, uh, and the emphasis on self-reliance. These are unique and distinctive, and I think they offer us an adequate foundation upon which to rethink the Dharma in a way that is true to what is distinctive about the Buddha and is able to address the condition of our time. Rebirth, different realms of existence, uh, it basically just fall off the map. Um, I, don't have a, I used to get very worked up about rebirth and so on. Um, I don't anymore. Um, and it could be that uh, we may find that you know, scientific research into the brain or whatever uh, you know, reveals that actually there is reincarnation. That, that's not a problem for me at all. But I think we are nonetheless at a point in our understanding today where it's extremely difficult to understand what on earth reincarnation would mean. Uh, I'm not interested in just saying it must be true because the Buddha said it. That's frankly a kind of uncritical fundamentalism. And I don't think the Dharma is uncritical fundamentalism. It, it, the, Buddha, the people who insist on reincarnation are basically making a tr uh, an empirical truth claim. They're saying when this organism dies, factor X will get reborn. The Buddha nowhere states what factor X could possibly be. And uh, as I mentioned in this sutta, consciousness definitely can't uh, be that which gets reborn because the Buddha understands consciousness uh, repeatedly as what emerges conditional upon an organism encountering an environment or a sense organ encountering uh, its object. On the contact between those two, consciousness arises. When that contact stops, consciousness ceases. Consciousness, as he says in the Sangyutta Nikaya, emerges out of Nama Rupa, uh, the, in other words, the, the, the physical and mental world of this organism. So you have a huge problem. Um, and I would you know, personally feel quite deeply that uh, this whole uh, metaphysics of reincarnation actually is, is actually irrelevant. 
let's stop it there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.